This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, November 7th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. Governments are good at mandating things, but the private sector is better at innovating, helping consumers evaluate trade-offs between, say, having your TV on in the background and costly energy consumption. Todd Myers directs environmental policy at the Washington Policy Center. We spoke last week in Colorado Springs. When people think about Uh, Regulation, especially environmental regulation, they tend to view it as uh, something that governments have to do. And while there probably is a role for government when you're dealing with uh, issues that that require massive collective action, um, there are innovations that no government uh, on the planet could come up with that have nonetheless improved environmental quality. So uh, it's, and it's easy to just take those for granted. It's easy to take that level of innovation right. for granted. But when we look at the impact of various technological innovations on environmental quality, what, how, do we, how should we be looking at that? Well, a good example of where there is heavy government regulation and yet it is private sector technology that is uh, making the biggest difference is with uh, smart thermostats. So the federal government spent billions of dollars in the Obama administration to roll out smart meters. And the promise was is that it would give you more control over um, how much energy you use so that you had the information to say, oh, I shouldn't use energy now. But what's really making the difference is actually Nest thermostats, and then there's another similar thermostat called Ecobee. And Nest is actually partnered now with utilities so that it rewards you when you shift your demand outside of peak hours. Peak hours is when it's most expensive. And what Nest is able to do is to say, if you shift outside of that, what it will do is it will precondition your house. So your house stays cool or warm, whatever, but it will do it in the period of time before peak demand so that your house is comfortable, but you're not using electricity at the most expensive. So anyone who's worked at a big box retailer yeah. is probably familiar with this as a strategy. Right. Um, the uh, Walmart and others uh, during the hot summer months will fill yeah. the store with cool air very early in the morning right and then uh, try to maintain that throughout the day that's exactly right but it, and and if you have a big box store you have the incentive because you use so much electricity but homeowners don't and they don't have the information and so the beauty is is that the artificial intelligence that comes with nest um, gives you the power to do that and again we spent billions of dollars rolling out smart meters that had the promise of doing that, but they don't actually do it. It is the private sector that does it because Nest has to win over um, uh, customers, and the customers have to feel the benefit of that. And so by that market force of forcing Nest and Ecobee and others to actually deliver on those energy savings makes them more effective and more efficient. So specifically with regard to that uh, example of a private sector innovation that uh, delivers uh, either lower energy use or better environmental quality, uh, it seems that uh, public utilities or or other utilities uh, are not exactly uh, moving quickly to accommodate those kinds of technologies, because I'm imagining if you're moving your consumption to off-peak and if there are some sort of uh, benefits or uh, rebates for having done that, that's great, but it doesn't 
give you a sense of what those real savings are necessarily. Right. And so it's it's sort of a catch-22 for the regulated monopoly utilities because, as you say, if you move – if you reduce – your energy use, they don't make as much. But because they're regulated monopolies, they have certain targets that they have to hit with regard to with regard to consumption and conservation. And so it is actually some of those utilities who are trying to meet the regulatory guidelines. So it's it's a very delicate line. But where you see utilities in less regulated markets where there's more competition, they're more likely to offer these sorts of technology incentives um, as a customer service um, rather than as a requirement to meet government um, rules. And the thing I like about Nest is, is that for a long time, the rates and everything else have been set by the utility commissions and the utilities. And the customers are essentially cut out. They don't have control over the rates. It's very hard for them to see what it is. And the only way that you can really squeeze the customer in in those circumstances is technology like Nest that gives them more control. Even if they don't get a rebate, not every utility offers rebates for Nest, but even if you don't get a rebate, Nest, which comes completely outside the system, goes directly to the consumer, gives them more control. And that's the real power is, is it's not just giving the customer more control, but it's giving the more customer more control about how to help the environment, how to reduce energy use, how to increase conservation. That's the really exciting. That's where you're seeing the most powerful and interesting improvements in environmental sustainability, not from the regulated sector, not from regulations and government, but from the private sector. And I've seen uh, similar products that are not, uh, as you say, thermostats, but that allow you to essentially plug a device into your breaker box and determine where in your house you are uh, just burning energy. Because we're not, people aren't particularly well equipped to examine like, well, how much is my having my TV on in the background actually consuming versus a washing machine versus any number of other devices you have in your house. So let me give you two examples. It's not just electricity, but it is electricity. So I have one of those in my house called Sense, and you put it in your box, and it samples. So what's interesting is the smart meters that the government gives you sample every about 5 to 15 minutes. The box that I have in my house samples my electricity use a million times a second. So its artificial intelligence can determine the unique signature of each appliance in my house and determine where I'm using my electricity. And it gives me a readout on my phone. Okay, th these are the appliances that are using it. And some of the things are predictable, like your uh, a washing machine and your air dryer, rather. Um, but some of the things you'd be surprised. My, I realized that my incandescent light bulbs in my kitchen were using a huge amount of electricity. And when I swapped them out for LEDs, I saved a lot. That is not something me, even as an energy geek, would have expected that those light bulbs were using so much. But because I had the information, I was able to do something about it. Because that's, the, that's where you're going to make improvements in the environment is by taking people who have the incentive to save, which is homeowners, and giving them the information to target it. Um, rather than sort of top-down approaches. Let me give you one other example. It's not just electricity, it's also water. So there's a number of different um, appliances that you now can put, can attach to your water main that will give you information right to your phone. So there's one called Buoy that you hook up 
and it syncs with your phone and, and uses artificial intelligence to tell you where you're using your water. And it was created by somebody who lived in California, but who loved her hot showers. And she wanted to figure out where she could save water so that she could enjoy her shower in the morning, but still deal with water shortages. And, uh, it not only tells you, okay, here's where you're wasting, here's where you're saving, but about 10% of water in every household is simply waste, leaks and other things like that. So just finding those leaks, just making sure that your toilet isn't running, saves water. But the second thing, and this is a really cool thing, is that about 5% of households every year have a catastrophic water break that you know uses huge amounts of water, but also causes more than $10,000 of damage in your house. And what it will do is if it senses a break like this, it'll send a note to your phone and you can immediately shut off the water to your house and prevent that damage and save the water. Again, this is not coming out of government. This is permissionless innovation that is coming out of somebody who sees an environmental problem and sees a business opportunity and creates it. And it, and it creates opportunities for uh, even public utilities. Uh, it creates opportunities for the government to set rates that uh, will allow, encourage people to economize. Yeah, and again, it and, is, and they would otherwise have no way of doing it, much less any incentive to do it. Absolutely, they do have the incentive, but the incentive is is very detached from you because you only see it once a month, right? It's very or every other month, and in my case, you only see the usage and you try to figure out based on that very vague bill. It's very difficult. So you have that incentive, but you just don't have the granular information that we now have thanks to technology. And again, it's not that governments are doing these things. It is that individuals are doing these things. And it, resource use is very easy because there is a cost on electricity. There's a cost on water. But permissionless innovation and these sort of market approaches are um, finding other ways as well. A lot of people talk about the uh, crisis of or the concern about ocean plastic. And there is more plastic going in the ocean. There's no doubt about it. But it's not coming from the United States. So all these bag bans and other things like that are focusing on the wrong problem. The problem is coming from Southeast Asia, from India, things like that. So a company called or a, a nonprofit called Plastic Bank set up um, – locations in Indonesia and the Philippines where they will collect plastic. They will pay people actually uh, in a cryptocurrency that they have created that people can buy. They can charge their phone there and other things like that for the amount of plastic. And then they're selling the plastic to SC Johnson. SC Johnson is recycling it. And next year you can buy a Windex bottle that has a little symbol on the back and you can, you can check it with your iPhone or your smartphone and see where that plastic has come from in the world. So they are taking plastic out of the ocean or keeping it out of the ocean and turning it into a marketing advantage to say, if you buy Windex, you are helping the world's oceans. So it's a psychic good addition to uh, your normal product purchases. Absolutely. And, and that's the thing about the market. The market creates the disposable income that necessary so that you can do these sorts of things. If you are you know, living day to day, you don't have the income to spend a little bit more for things that you think are environmentally friendly. There's always a question about whether what you're buying is actually environmentally friendly. But what they're doing with things like this is, is, the, is the ability to look, scan that code on the Windex bottle, and you can see the chain of custody thanks to the internet, right? So you're using blockchain. They're using cryptocurrency. They're using market forces. I mean, these are the things that are starting to emerge and there are real opportunities. And while governments are fighting about how to deal with 
plastic in the ocean and doing silly things like banning plastic bags, organizations like this, small organizations are using the technology that is now at hand to help the environment. So on the road, uh, before we started ta- uh, recording, you mentioned uh, that California had regulations governing electric cars. Yeah. But they had nothing for hybrids. That's exactly right. And what? And if we've learned anything in the last decade, I mean, the iPhone has only been around for a decade, which is really remarkable to think about how much things have changed. And what it shows is, is that we're really bad at predicting the future and what technologies will emerge. So in the 90s, California had a mandate for a certain percentage of electric vehicles. They kept missing those mandates. In fact, there was a, a documentary called Who Killed the Electric Car that blamed everybody in the world except government uh, for the problem. But it was actually the fact that politicians are not good at predicting. But at the end of the 90s, Toyota and Honda created uh, hybrid vehicles. And it's ironic that the Prius is sort of the symbol of the environmental movement and of consciousness, right? If you want to show that you're environmentally conscious, you buy a Prius. But the Prius didn't come from government regulations. It came out of the market. There were no uh, subsidies. There were no government mandates when the Prius first came out. It was only politicians jumping on the bandwagon two and three years afterwards. So politicians are good at jumping on the bandwagon, but they're not good at developing the technology that actually is reducing environmental impact. Yeah. And that's not it's not terribly surprising that governments are bad at developing new technology, at least you know in the, in the last sixty years. Um, but at the same time, you have to think: well, there. Let's say I'm a well-meaning uh, person who supports uh, heavy environmental regulation. Uh, I could say to you: look, without these uh, mandates, without uh, cafe standards, without these things there would have been no reason to create these technologies to begin with. So in a sense, the government deserves a lot of credit for imposing this regulation because look at the benefits that we've received from compelling the private sector to devote its resources to things that uh, we realize in retrospect were great. I'm not an anarchist, so I don't say that there's no role for government. And I used to work at a government environmental agency. But if politicians are good at one thing, it is taking credit for the inventions of other people. And so you can theoretically draw a line from cafe standards to hybrids, but it is a very thin line and there is no reason that hybrids would necessarily come out of it. And in fact, what government, what politicians thought was going to come out with something totally different. So it's a very tenuous argument. It is an argument that politicians like to make to take credit, but still there are lots of things that have gone on um, that politicians had no idea. Let me give another example, car to go, which is, you know, car sharing, which in cities like Seattle, where I come from, there are little car to go, two seaters all over the place. And initially there was a fight because they wanted to park these on the street. They wanted to distribute them. The city of Seattle is very nervous about that. But, and again, completely permissionless. This was not part of meeting any government regulation. This was just they saw a market for people who wanted to be environmentally friendly, who didn't have a car but wanted to be mobile and didn't want to use transit. Um, And the city of Seattle now estimates that there are 9,000 fewer cars in the city because CarGo is available. These market ideas that serve a customer need are helping reduce CO2 emissions, helping reduce traditional air pollution like particulate matter in a way that government never intended, politicians could never have imagined, and in fact, in many cases, initially fought. Yeah, and it's interesting because markets tend to meet people where they are and tend to uh, either pass or fail a market test, and governments have 
let's let's just say no core competency in that area. That's exactly right. Well, and that's and that's what you see is is that people what governments do is they come up with a strategy and then people don't meet the strategy, they tend to regulate you and push you more and more until you meet it. So in a number of communities, you know, we have tolling or we have hot lanes where they increase the toll based on demand and the the goal is and what they call that is a market solution because it, you know, has prices. But really what they're doing it is social engineering using prices rather than regulation and the difference is very small they they want to for they want to cause as much pain as they can to force you to do what they want rather than giving you true options that take advantage you know that that actually build in the, the real costs it is permissionless innovation that goes around that and says instead of doing this why don't we give you other options that are more efficient but also suit your needs like car to go. So for for options like car to go, for uh, Zipcar, which I made use of for many years yeah. when I didn't have a car in Washington, D.C., uh, and found it to be, you know, not as inconvenient as uh, uh, taking transit on, on a regular basis to do shopping and things like that. Um, but in terms of governments that uh, are forward-looking to the extent that that is a thing, um how can they best set best practices for accommodating the kinds of innovation that one meet people where they are and two uh, contribute to uh, you know reducing congestion on the road can re- give people giving people better information about what they're consuming in terms of uh, energy in their home it it is simply to encourage you know, this sort of innovation as much as possible and to welcome it. Um, Calif- I mean, San Francisco right now is doing the exact opposite. They are starting um, an, uh, an agency where if you want to test or introduce new technology into San Francisco, you have to get it pre-permitted before you can even test it. Um, so they are going, ironically, in all of the places in the world, San Francisco is doing this, is actually cracking down on these sort of permissionless innovations that have done so much um, by make, putting more government control. Do you think it's that people in San Francisco who are tend to be more tech-savvy than probably most people in the United States, there's probably an order of magnitude difference in terms of uh, engagement with technology among people in San Francisco. Is it that they, you think that they just take that kind of innovation for granted and, and don't appreciate what contributes to it? Or is it just a, uh, an attitude that is, you know, the government needs to do this, it's important, and therefore we're going to compel people to behave a certain way? New technology always causes disruption. That is its goal, right? That is not just a side effect. That is its goal is to disrupt. And so there will always be people who are disrupted and those people will go to government and say, hey, you know, things are changing. I don't like this. Can you do something? And politicians often will say, yeah, I, I, that's my job. My job is here to respond to your needs. And, and since their mindset is one of, an, you know, engagement and control anyway, um, I think it comes very naturally to them. But um, I used to, my office used to be in, in Kirkland, Washington, where there is a Google campus. And uh, you could see the Google driverless cars driving all over the community. Um, and the reason that they did it is because the city council said, well, Google, you're here and we, we want these things and we want to be a place where you can test these. And that's great. Um, so I think it is, it's, it's hard to come up with policies that say, you know, welcome 
invent things here, um, but it, it is more of an attitude of openness. In Redmond, Washington, near where I live, um, there is there are a number of different um, private uh, space organizations, and there is a hub there simply because that became the hub, and the city council said, look, we like this. We want to encourage this. And so if you, for tech-savvy folks who care about the environment, simply encouraging those sorts of innovations, that is the first step. And it seems like sort of an amorphous step, but we see places like San Francisco going very strongly in the other direction and discouraging it. Todd Myers directs environmental policy at the Washington Policy Center. We spoke last week in Colorado Springs. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.